is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today is Ukraine, Gaza, and the possible race towards World War III. Joining me to share his expertise is Professor Daniel Kovalik. He is a labor and human rights attorney and author. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. For over two decades, he served as a counsel for the United Steelworkers and the FLCIO and is best known for his cases against Coca-Cola, Drummond, and Occidental Petroleum, based on human rights abuses in Colombia. He was a recipient of a Project Censored Award for his investigation into the murders of Colombian trade unionists. Dan is a graduate of Columbia Law School, received a fellowship at Stanford University's Law School. He has written several acclaimed books dealing with the scapegoating of Russia, plots to attack and overthrow Iran and Venezuela, U.S. efforts to establish world hegemony by interfering in other nations and on council culture. He is the author of Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Council Culture, and his most recent release is Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. And his articles appear on RTV, Counterpunch, Huffington Post, Global Research, and elsewhere. Nice to have you back, Dan. Gary, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Earlier, we were doing more programming dealing with the Ukraine crisis, and now there's this eruption of turbulence in Israel. But virtually all, 100% of American media, is giving us a story that is nothing more, in my opinion, than handouts from, uh, from Israel. No one is looking at the history, the context, the content of why someone would engage in such a heinous crime as the, uh, as the people who are protesting uh, in Israel did in, in Gaza. So we're getting one side of a story. And I know that you have always tried to give people a fuller, deeper, more honest and objective and fair story. So I'd like for you to take a look at this and give us your perspective. And also, in the Pacific, there is American belligerence with China over Taiwan. There are war hawks in Washington that continue to threaten Iran, and the situation is heating up for U.S. troops that are illegally occupying and stealing oil from Syria. People, Most people don't know we've not left Syria. A whole northern region where all their oil fields are and where their income comes from, we're just stealing it. In the meantime, the United States continues in its arrogance to push its pseudo-rules-based order to maintain its crippling global hegemony and military might the majority of the international community, in my opinion, is now pivoting towards China, Russia, India, and the rapidly growing influence of BRICS. In fact, Joe Laurie at Consortium News wrote a recent essay describing how everywhere Secretary of State Blinken goes to negotiate over Gaza situation, he gets humiliated by Middle Eastern leaders, including Netanyahu, but also the United States allies like Sisi in Egypt and Turkey's Erdogan are also uh, telling him no thanks. Blinken's visit to Turkey the other day was especially embarrassing. The only person to greet his arrival was a local deputy governor. Nobody from Erdogan's foreign ministry would attend. 
Saudi Arabia's Ben Solomon did something even similar to that several months ago and kept Blinken waiting for 12 hours before meeting with him and then read him the riot act, reprimanded him. So this current White House, in my opinion, has no diplomatic skills whatsoever and is oblivious, incompetent, in bullying of other countries over the Ukraine-Russian conflict and now the Israeli occupation of and the terror they're presenting in Gaza. Well, it might be a case of showing finally the emperor has no clothes. So if you would please take us on a panoramic scan over the Biden administration's foreign affairs debacles since entering office, and what is the picture we should take home about the United States as standing in the world today, and how has our unconditional support of Zelensky's government in Kiev contributed to this? The form is yours. Yes, thank you, Gary. First of all, I think you summarized the situation pretty well. It looks like, you know, we uh, a world war could break out on three different fronts, as you mentioned, and possibly Ukraine, the Middle East, or the China Sea. Um, yes, Biden's foreign policy has been a failure from beginning to end, I think, probably starting with the very embarrassing um, withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was done in a way that put people's lives at risk. We left, of course, all of our equipment there, left all these people at the airport clamoring to leave. It was, it was quite a sight. I certainly think we should have gotten out of there. We should have gotten out there a long, uh, gotten out of there a long time ago. But the way it was done was embarrassing and humiliating for the United States. And then very quickly, he had to confront or should have confronted the, the brewing situation in Ukraine. Uh, Russia had very legitimate concerns, security concerns over Ukraine, wanted to talk to the United States about dealing with those. Um, I believe that that conflict could have been prevented very easily had the U.S. agreed to a couple things. One, that Ukraine would remain neutral and not part of NATO. And also had the U.S., um, required Ukraine to abide by the Minsk agreements, which are two agreements um, that the UN Security Council unanimously approved of, including the U.S., which would have ended the conflict between Ukraine, the government in Kiev, and its own people in the Donbass, which have been, has been going on since 2014, which our press has tried to lull us into forgetting that, that the conflict did not begin with Russia's direct intervention on February 24, 2022. But it began in 2014 with a coup that the U.S. supported that put in a right-wing government that was very hostile towards its own Russian-speaking people in the eastern part of Ukraine, known as the Donbass, which, by the way, I visited it two times in the last year. And 14,000 people died in that conflict before Russia even intervened in February of 2022. So Russia had an interest in that conflict ending in, in, in the Russian-speaking people in the Donbass, who historically had been part of Russia for a very long time, by the way, um, had an interest in those people being protected. And, and all, you know, Putin was saying, look, we don't want... Ukraine part of NATO, and we, and we want, as the Minsk agreements required, we want Ukraine to stop attacking the Donbass, 
Um, and it wouldn't. In fact, the attacks increased the weekend before Russia intervened in February 2022. And that's according to the Organization for European Cooperation and Security, which is a 57-member body, including countries from the, re uh, the West, including the United States itself, said there were 2,000 ceasefire violations of the Minsk agreements in the weekend prior to Russia intervening. That was something like a 30 times, 30 times increase over the, the recent period. And this is what led to Russia intervening. Had Biden been willing to engage with Russia over these issues, I think that could have been prevented. But he didn't, and he wouldn't. And that conflict, or at least that phase of the conflict, began. What we also know, Gary, which you probably know, but which a lot of people don't know, but we've now heard this from several people, including um, most recently Gerhard Schroeder, the for former chancellor of Germany, and Neftali Bella Bennett, her former prime minister of Israel, have both confirmed that there was a peace deal that could have been reached between Russia and Ukraine in March or April of 2022. That means a month or two after hostilities had began, very early on in hostilities, which, by the way, would have guaranteed Ukraine retaining all of its territory that is that it has since lost um, in this conflict. And what they confirmed, because they were part of these negotiations, is that Ukraine was ready to sign that deal. In fact, did sign up a framework of the deal, but that the United States intervened to prevent that peace deal from happening. And the U.S. had Boris Johnson, then Prime Minister of Great Britain, go to Kiev and tell Zelensky not to abide by that agreement. And so what we know for sure is that the U.S. killed peace in Ukraine. And hundreds of thousands of people died since then, as you know. Uh, Ukraine will not stay intact now. It, most likely, Russia will um, take uh, four different republics, including the Donbass, which is two republics, um, after this is all over. That all could have been prevented. We see time and again the U.S., and particularly this administration, but it's not unique to this administration, being unwilling, as you said, to engage in any true diplomacy or peace negotiations. Now, of course, we have this conflict between Israel and Palestine, again, one that's been long in the making, that has been fueled by Israel's acceleration of illegal settlements in the West Bank, taking over land and property and homes of Palestinians that have been in their possession for generations. The U.S. has allowed this to happen, has not complained about this. Then you had, of course, the very provocative act of Donald Trump um, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel when, in fact, um, that is seen as the capital of Palestine for the Palestinians and, and certainly had been up till now divided east and west Jerusalem with Palestine retaining the east. Uh, so, uh, and, and the Palestinians, again, have been subjected to these indignities, which the U.S., again, has not protested, including the violent 
expulsion of people from property and in, in, in homes in the West Bank, which, by the way, led to around 242 deaths before October 7th of this year. And meanwhile, in Gaza, it's been even worse. As some, like Noam Chomsky, have characterized it, it's, it's basically an open-air prison. Others call it a concentration camp. And has been so since 2006, with, with Israel controlling who comes and goes, and it, uh, with few exceptions, doesn't allow, allow anyone to come or go. Israel controls, of course, the water supplies, the food, all supplies going in and out of Gaza and has made sure that the Gazans are living, by the way, on the bare minimum to survive. They, they calculated how many calories per person was necessary for the Gazans to survive, and they've actually made sure they've gotten a little less than that. This is all even before October 7th. And the U.S. and the world community stood aside and let this happen. This is what led, of course, to the violence on October 7th, um, by Hamas and other militants, not just Hamas militants, uh, which led to the loss of lives. Israel claims 1,400 people, though. Um, Haaretz did a very good report on this. It's an Israeli newspaper. Believes the figure is around 900, actually, and that about a half of those were military people, by the way. Um, and, that, and that during this, during October 7th, Israel ended up firing on its own people, by the way in a kibbutz, at least one kibbutz, and firing on some of those people who were at that rave concert. Um, and that's so some of the casualties were actually Israel's fault. Now, of course, in the end, it's, it's fair to say that it was the Hamas and other militant attack that led to those uh, friendly fire killings, if you want to call them that. So they, they do bear responsibility for that. But it's important to at least look at those facts when we look what is happening now. And so how has Israel responded to this? It claims that it wants to go after the militants who carried out those attacks, which is completely fair, of course. Uh, but that's not what it's doing. Instead, it is bombarding Gaza into the Stone Age. Uh, a few days ago, what I saw was that um, they have dropped a tonnage of, of bombs that exceeds about two and a half times that of the bombs we dropped on Hiroshima. So far, 10,000 people have been killed, about 92% civilians, about 4,000 children. By the way, I saw a figure today, it's more children per day are being killed in this conflict by Israel by many multiples than in any recent conflict we've seen. It's, it's actually staggering the amount of children being killed. And of course, meanwhile, for now, for over a month and running, Israel's cut off water, food, and medicine, and electricity to Gaza. So for over a month, people have been largely without those things. Uh, Gaza, as I read, is now down to 5% of the water it had before October 7th. And by the way, that wasn't much water to begin with because Israel had been destroying water supplies even before that, putting concrete into to fresh water springs the Palestinians drink from, um, for example. Um, so they were already living off of less, and, and now they have 5% of that. 
And so now we see, of course, people, especially the most vulnerable, especially children, babies, starting to get sick and die from lack of water and food. That's in addition to the 10,000 people I mentioned that have already been killed. So we are seeing something on a scale we've never seen, certainly never seen in real time like we are on videos and whatnot. And it's appalling. And again, the U.S. kind of throws up its hands and says, well, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, we just approved another $14 billion of military assistance for Israel. And we're going to give it to them no matter what. And we vetoed at least three Security Council resolutions I know of that would have had a ceasefire, which would have protected uh, civilians, which would have guaranteed uh, that humanitarian laws were followed. U.S. vetoed those and will continue to veto them. So, of course, the U.S. has all the leverage in the world to stop this, but says, ah, there's nothing we can do. And so what has happened from all this? And meanwhile, it continues to provoke China in the South China Sea, by the way. It's called the South China Sea, but we like to pretend somehow that we have dominion over it. And the response to all this is that the U.S. is becoming incredibly isolated in the world. The world is absolutely recoiling at what's happening in Gaza, which, of course, they know the U.S. is is, is supporting through, again, diplomacy, through uh, arms, arms sales and, and, and gifts. Um, and the world is looking outside the U.S. and the West now for leadership, for, for trading partners. And um, the U.S.'s really dominance of the world is, is now declining. Now, the U.S. could respond to that, of course, in a couple ways. I mean, one way, of course, is to accept it accept that we now have a multipolar world and deal with it and deal with other nations on an equal basis, which the U.S. seems completely unwilling to do, um, and find a way to navigate a new world in which it is not the only superpower, as it did, of course, after World War II. Um, but again, it's chosen another path. It, the more it loses control over the world, the more it lashes out, it appears. The more it tries to stoke war. And it, it, it does appear to me there are people in very high places in Washington who do want a worldwide conflagration. If, if that's what it takes to stay as the sole hegemonic power. And I think that's the most dangerous thing confronting the world today. I've probably gone on for too long, Gary, but that's my kind of No, I take. appreciate very 20, much. 20,000 feet, yeah. I appreciate your overview here. I'd like to go back for a moment and re-examine, just as if you had no experience or background on the Middle East or the history of, of the Israeli uh, and Palestinian conflict, and just ask, why has the United States and its mainstream media and its institutions aligned only with Israel and not looked at the fact that how would an average American feel if we told you today, okay, we're going to have you settled on the West Bank, but it's going to be completely enclosed in walls. You will not be come, come able to come in or out. 
unless you have a pass. If you want to work in Jerusalem, you have to have a whole security pass to show that you have no background or association with any terrorist groups like Hamas. But you have no rights. Now, yes, on the West Bank, that is supposed to be yours based upon the 1948 Accord, um, you have that land, but we're going to take that land. We're going to take all of it. We have now 750,000 settlers there. And they'll come into your home, and they'll say, you have 24 hours to leave. You say, but we've lived here for three generations, four generations. doesn't matter. And then you go out to pick olives, which is one of the staples of an agricultural uh, society. Some of these olive trees, by the way, are 1,000 years old. And that's what they own, and they go out and they pick their olives, and then they sell those olives. But the day you go out, you see that there are settlers there with guns, and the military is with them. And they come over, and they try to set your trees on fire. And you try to protest, so they bring in bulldozers, and they block your road, the road that you go to, to drive your truck in, to load up all that you've harvested and take it to market. Then they bring chainsaws, and they begin to cut down every tree that you have. Mind you, these trees are some of the oldest olive trees in the world. And uh, so one person goes to protest, and they shoot him right in the stomach, and nobody cares. Others are beaten, kicked, spat upon, and cursed. And then they say, listen what we're telling you. You have 24 hours to take all your possessions out of here, and you'll never return. That actually happened. All right? There are films of this, but not a word of any of this in the media. Not a word about seeing a family rush to take what they can. They only have one small truck, and they put everything they can in that truck. So they have to leave their house, their barn, their equipment, because they can't take it with them. And they have no place to go. They have no money to get there. And they're told, if you stop, if you come back, you will be killed. But then you think, well, okay, there's a, there's a court they can go to. Yes, it's called a settler's court, run by a judge that is a settler. These are hardwired right-wing Zionists. This story of the suffering that has been going on on a daily basis for decades, not a word, not one word, in the media or in the halls of Congress. So now you have, as of this morning, I looked at the latest figure, the Israeli government this morning said that 20,000 Palestinians have, been, have died, 20,000. And the number of children dying, yesterday was 4,100 they knew of, but now that's been over 5,000, going to 10,000, and they estimate double that are buried in the rubble. I watched a video yesterday of a father running a child into a hospital, and the entire skull was gone. The child was still alive and it's open brain. But then there was no water in the hospital. There was no anesthesia. They had to amputate. Imagine if you're a young child and you have no choice. You have to amputate or you die. And they're amputating and doing surgeries with no anesthesia in the hospitals. No water, no food. So then they're told, go to a safe place, go south. Get out of the country, go south. So they set up UN spots where people can come and wait there, highly congested. Remember, Gaza is only about the size of Detroit, or about twice the size of Manhattan. And there's only one way out, 
and you can't go to sea if they catch you in the water or boat, they'll shoot and kill you. And so 2.3 million people have to leave. Well, how do you get 2.3 million people? I'm down here in Florida, and when the last hurricane came, 7 million people had to get on one road, 75, to go north, and it was just bumper to bumper. Even when the storm came, some people were still on the road 24 hours later because they couldn't make it out of the state. People didn't have the gasoline. Well, here you got people with donkey carts, people walking, no possessions. Everything they own in their life is now being destroyed. Now, if you were going after Hamas and its leaders who organized this original uh, destruction of human life, fine, hold them accountable. But the the percentage of civilians, innocent civilians, who have done nothing wrong, dying compared to Hamas, is an outrageous percentage. Whole blocks are being bulldozed, or just bombed. Whole blocks, whole groups. And then they went to where they knew there was no protection. It was all outdoors. They were packed in like sardines, waiting to get out, probably into the Sinai, when Egypt opened its gate, but it hadn't yet and they bombed those people. There's a huge crater. They don't know how many people are dead because it's gonna take months to pull these people's bodies out of the rubble. So right now, they're estimating around 40,000 injured, 20,000 dead, 5,000 to 10,000 of those are children. So my question, Dan, is since when does any journalist, and this is about the journalists and the politicians and the Sean Hannity's and the Laura Ingram's, since when is it okay to choose to self-censor show you don't show that type of suffering. And what would you do if you're an American and we said, okay, we're taking 4 million of you. 2.3 million are going to go live here and uh, 2.1 million are going to go live in the West Bank. And you have no freedoms, you have no choice, you have nothing you can do. You have to tolerate this. I'd like to look at that part of this as well, what we're not being told or shown. Please address this, if you would. Yeah, no, it's very important. Uh, uh, it's very important. And in fact, to the extent we know that these things are happening, we're, we're largely learning from alternative press or from social media, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and thank God, thank goodness those things exist, obviously. But yes, the mainstream media is failing us greatly. And why? I, you know, I, you ask, why is that? There's a few reasons. Um one is, of course, because the mainstream press usually takes the State Department line on everything, and Israel is is you know one of the you know um, important you know uh, un uncriticizable if that's a word um, pillars of U.S. foreign policy, and has been since 1948. You know, Israel is really a an imperial outpost for the United States in the Middle East. And, and the U.S. is very protective of it. And that's one reason that the press, and the press buys that and accepts that. And, and that's one reason. But along with that, they've accepted a certain mythology, too, with that. Um, the mythology that Israel puts out, that, that, again, most journalists don't question. And I was listening to Gideon Levy, who is, is a, he's Israeli himself, but he's very critical of, of the Israeli government and Zionism. And 
you know, he was talking about this mythology and the three pillars of it. And one, one of the pillars is, you know, that the Israelis are the chosen people. And therefore, they can um, act in any way they want to, especially on this land that they claim. Um, two, of course, is that, you know, what, you know, that because they were the victims of the Holocaust, which, of course, was a terrible crime, again, that this also gives them a certain license to do whatever they want, you know, now to others who they see as, as threats or or whatnot. Or, and the, but the third, which is also accepted as part of the mythology, is that the Palestinian people are subhumans. And that is a very important part of, of the Zionist ideology, but it, it's a part of the ideology that, that the U.S. press and the U.S. government have accepted, maybe subconsciously, but they accept it. And so, for example, when it was claimed by Israel that, that, that Hamas had de- beheaded 40 children, everyone was in a panic. And, of course, they should have been. It's a terrible thing. Now, it turns out that was not true. That was a lie. But... Fair enough that people would be very upset by that. Obviously, they should be. Well, now, as you say, we have four to 5,000 children in Gaza who have been killed. Many have been beheaded, by the way, you know, through shrapnel or, or buildings falling on them. Where's the outrage? Four or 5,000 versus 40. And again, even the 40 wasn't real. Um. But that is really, you know, and I've said this for years, and this is the sad part of it. And and I think you see this, again, permeate a lot of American culture, that the life of one white person, and I think Israelis are considered white people, um, is worth more than 10,000 or 20,000 or 50,000 brown people or Muslims. Not that all Palestinians, by the way, are Muslim. Many are Christians, too. Some are even... Uh, Jewish. Uh, so, um, but in any case, that that is accepted. And so what you said is important. You know, what if someone did this to us? What if someone came into my house that, that, that my family owned for 100 or 200 years and, and just said, leave? Sometimes they even make you destroy it. They'll, they'll actually watch you and make you destroy your own home so that they can build another one, right? Just to add insult to injury. And by the way, that is a big part of what happens. They want to terrorize and and belittle the population. That's part of what they do, too. So what if that happened to us? Well, that question, it's an easy one to answer if we have empathy for those people. But we have been taught not to have empathy for them because we have been taught that they're not human. Now, thank goodness, most Americans obviously don't accept that because the polls show most Americans do want a ceasefire. They do want this horrible massacre, this genocide to end in Gaza. Uh, 80% of Democrats want that, by the way. You know, Biden's own base wants it. So thank goodness most Americans are, are at least starting to reject those racist, you know, um, ideas. But I think it's it's been a long time coming. I think I think most Americans for a long time accepted that. Again, without even thinking about it, because that's part of our 
landscape. So given all those things, um, the media goes along and it, and it hides the truth. Of course, they don't even have the Western press. Has, I don't think they have and any uh, journalist in, in Gaza present, if they do, it's only a couple. Um, it's mostly Palestinian journalists covering this. And by the way, Israel's been killing a number of them and their families purposefully because they don't want the truth getting out. It's the same reason Israel cut off all communications in Gaza. They don't want the world seeing their crimes. But the truth does get out because there are people still able to videotape this, put it on social media. You do still have some Palestinian journalists left covering this conflict. Thank goodness. Uh, but the West is not covering. It's not covering it truthfully. Um, and again, you're not seeing the, the videos a lot of us are seeing on, on mainstream press. You're not seeing the videos of babies dying, being pulled from rubble, rubble, waking up in a hospital, looking for their family that has been killed and they'll never see again. Whole bloodlines are being wiped out. Every university in Gaza has been bombed. A number of hospitals have been bombed. UN refugee shelters have been bombed. And 88 UN staff people have been killed. That's the most in any conflict ever. And this has only been going on for a month. And the Indeed. Western press is trying desperately to keep that from view. But thank goodness they can't do it. They can't do it. Dan, do you remember in 2014... The, uh, the media in America did not cover it at all, that you had thousands of peaceful, non-armed civilians in Palestine or the Gaza who marched towards the fence as their symbolic uh, right of return. And, uh, and they were shot. They shot specifically the doctors, press, and they would shoot people who had clearly young people, they would shoot them in the legs. They killed over 400, just shot them. And still, they did not fight back. They just kept walking every day towards the fences. And the sharpshooters would be on the other side, seeing that they did not represent a threat, and just shooting them. And uh, there were over 2,400 injuries. And a lot of these people then had to go to the hospital and have their legs amputated. How are those people supposed to evacuate? Where are they supposed to go? They have no money, no water, no food. That in itself is a crime against humanity. So I just want to say that this just didn't start. This has been going on in American media. It didn't cover it. But I want to jump back to Zelensky for a moment. Because I played a clip about a month ago of the bagman for uh, Poroshenko, who was the president of Ukraine prior to Zelensky. Now, here's what he said, and he became a whistleblower, and he had all these documents. He's being interviewed by another, um, by another Ukrainian, and he said that he would take $50,000 per vote to every member of their parliament, because you had to buy the votes. And where where would he get that cash? He would get it from all the major corporations in Ukraine. 
If you owned a company in Ukraine, you had to give money, cash, on a regular basis to the president, who then would see that who had to get money in return. And so he said, I have all the documents. I have all the names and dates of how much money was given. It's hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, he said that everything in Ukraine is corrupt. Everything. And then he was told, pay off the people surrounding the prosecution of uh, Burisma, the oil company that Archer and Biden's son worked for as consultants, though they had no experience whatsoever in gas exploration, exploration or um, oil. They had no energy background at all. He was just a lawyer. And yet he was getting over $88,000 a month, millions of dollars total, for doing nothing. But he was the son of the vice president, sitting vice president. And then he said it cost $100,000 in cash for that to happen. And he was talking about who he had to give the money to. But then they had an honest attorney general. They don't call him attorney general, the chief prosecutor. And his team were investigating corruption. And they had found the corruption with the president, all the cash he was receiving, all the bribes, and uh, who they were giving money to in the Congress there. And then, but specifically, he found out all about Burisma and his corruption, the oligarch who owned it, his corruption. And they were about to make all this public. And then Hunter Biden and his partner flew to Dubai. They met with Ukrainians there who said, you got to stop it. Your dad's got to do something. So he calls his dad. It's on a speakerphone and tells him there's trouble. The next week, Joe Biden then goes to Ukraine, has a speech about corruption in front of their parliament. But then he says, you got to stop this investigation. He said, we can't stop the investigation. He said, well, I've got a billion dollars that uh, you're not going to get. Well, you can't do that. He said, then call the president, meaning Barack Obama. And so six hours later, before he threatened to leave without the money, going to them, he says in front of the Council on Foreign Relations, outside, sitting in a chair, he said, well, son of a bitch, they, you know, they fired the guy. Now, that guy, no one in American media interviewed him, not a person. But the bag man said that he was willing to come and wanted to come and testify before Congress and the FBI and give him all the documents, all the evidence. They said no, they wouldn't give him a visa. No media interviewed him. I believe I was the only media in the United States to play that interview where he's confessing and saying, I want to help with this. And nobody wanted to know that because that's, that's not hearsay. He's got everything that he did personally. And then, and then we end up now, as of now, we're seeing all the money that the big guy getting 10%, right? They get $4 million. He gets $400,000. Uh, his money is going to from his brother to him, and they're lying about, you know, oh, this is a repayment of loan. Well, show the original loan. Show where you borrowed that money. Show us legal doc. They don't have any, and they're refusing to answer that. But they got all the evidence. They found out that Joe Biden had a secret uh, cell phone that he was communicating with his over 68,000 messages. That means all the time when he was vice president, he was dealing not on personal matters, but on business matters. And he was dealing with corrupt governments around the world. 
And yet the American media refused to accept any of this. They protected him. The FBI slow-walked investigations to Biden's. Now we find out that when Congress was going to pass a law to hire a special um, overseer of the money that went to Ukraine, show us where it went. We want proof of these $130 billion. Where is it at? The Democrats, 27 Democrats, voted it down. Why? Right. Why? Now we find out, you mentioned earlier about Afghanistan, the first figures that came out from the Inspector General's office was that we had left $82 billion in hardware there, enough to make it one of the largest, one of the sixth or seventh largest armies in the world. Bagram Air Force Base was billions of dollars to build that. That was the most secure air base in the world. Why didn't, why didn't the United States and the Biden administration take all of the people who had cooperated there so they could be flown out of the country, the interpreters and people? And you know what they left behind? You talk about really, really criminal negligence. They left behind all of the computers without erasing anything, the passwords, so every paycheck that showed who was doing spying, who was doing interpreting, any job they did uh, for the Americans there. It gave their metrics, it gave their addresses, phone numbers, fingerprints. So now the Taliban knew exactly who to go and arrest and kill. And, uh, and yet that's not been discussed by the American media at all. The real amount that we left there has not been discussed. And so we just don't seem to be able to do anything right. And we didn't want to know how much money was being wrongfully uh, captured uh, in Afghanistan. And now we sure as hell don't want to know what Zelensky was up to. Oh, and by the way, he showed to have $1.2 billion in the Panama Papers. Remember the Panama Papers? That's right. You know, yeah. That's correct. 1.2 billion before he was president. And he just oh he just happens to own two villas in Italy. He just bought a villa about 2 months ago, paid cash 5 million dollars in an exclusive uh, area of Egypt, and he has the French Riviera in Switzerland. Around the world he's got Miami Beach. He's got all these homes. Not a word. Where would you get the money? So then another whistleblower comes and says everything about this guy is a lie. Everything is corrupt. You can't find you can't find an honest politician or Paul anyone, and yet we don't want to know any of that of how our money has been wasted and spent, and yet not a penny of that has been helped to de-ghettoize America to help the people who are suffering from abject poverty. Your thoughts on that, please? No, it's incredible, Gary. I mean, what you set forth. I mean that you know we're supporting one of the most corrupt governments in the world in Ukraine. Um. It should be mentioned also, you mentioned Poroshenko, who was the U.S.'s guy, that has to be pointed out, who also vowed that the, his own Russian-speaking people would be living um, in bomb shelters while the you know real re- Ukrainians were you know going to school. Um, he had such animus towards, towards them. Um, we obviously support Ukraine for or we, I mean, the U.S. government supports it for its own purposes, and that is to try to undermine Russia. That's the only use Ukraine has to the United States, and that's why it partners with it. But, of course, it needs to be pointed out. I mean, as you point out, it's not just Ukraine that's corrupt, but our own officials, including 
Biden and, you know, there's a number of Congress people that are under indictment. Um, it's one corrupt government supporting another. And, of course, the other corruption is, is the defense industry, you know, which is making billions on these wars, whether we win or lose. It's the George Orwell line. The war was not meant to be won. It was meant to be continuous. And, and that's, that's their policy, just war all the time so we can just send money to the defense contractors who give a lot of money to Congress people. Um, and uh, meanwhile, as you say, there's no money left for social services, for the, for the homeless that continue to grow in this country, in every major city. When we had didn't have a speaker of the house for a while, and Congress was basically could was paralyzed, couldn't do anything. As soon as we got a new speaker of the house, what was the first thing they did? They wrote a fourteen billion dollar check to Israel. They didn't check around and say, "Hey, what needs my our people need that we need to help with?" No, they sent money out the door to Israel. Uh, and again, a lot of this money, as you say, uh, in addition to lining the pockets of the defense industry, it also ends up coming back and they it, the money's used to slush funds for other things as well. I mean, the, the, the defense spending is just um, this, you know, slush fund, which, again, lines uh, a lot of pockets, and that's why we keep giving money to it. I think it's at one point I saw the Pentagon could not account for $21 trillion of spending. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Dan, you said you would have to go at the top of the hour, so I'm not going to keep you, so you'll be late for something else. Any closing okay. thoughts for this part of the interview? Just that, look, I agree with President Eisenhower. The greatest you know, threat to our democracy is this military-industrial complex. We need to resist it. We have not had a vibrant peace movement really since 2003. We see the peace movement now rising again and growing. I welcome that, and we need to build it. And we need to reclaim this country and our government for the people and not for the, the war makers. Dan, you are right. I look forward to our next conversation together. Me too, Gary. I really appreciate you. Professor Dan Kovalik, I know that we're out of time for your interview. Thank you so much for the good work you've done. Your whole career, you've been fighting for human rights, for the underdog. And that's why your comments today are so salient and important. We look forward to another interview. And again, to just remind you, um, my guest today is professor uh, in law at University of Pittsburgh. Now, we're going to go finish our program with a clip about people who have the courage to speak out. Have you heard anyone in our State Department, our Senate, our House, our White House, our Defense Department, the Pentagon, speak out? Have you heard anyone in the media really speak out? I mean, we're talking about right now probably in the neighborhood of 15,000 dead children because they're counting about all the ones that are under the rubble, which is more than what we've found the bodies for. Because remember, they've been leveling whole blocks, big buildings, and people were in those apartments. They had nowhere else to go. And now they're dead. So wouldn't that in and of itself just that? 
innocent people dying. That's not in any way to excuse what Hamas did. They should be held accountable. But proportionality is missing here. So let's hear one legislator like Claire Daly, who has the courage to speak out in the Irish Parliament about crimes against humanity and shouldn't be Netanyahu, shouldn't Israel be held accountable for these? To our clip. I have a simple question for you. How many innocent Palestinian civilians, men, women, and children, does Israel have to slaughter? How many war crimes does Israel have to commit? How much death and destruction does Israel have to visit on the people of Gaza and Palestine before you will call for and impose sanctions on Israel and expel the Israeli ambassador from this country and call for the immediate referral of Israel to the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity and war crimes. Because in front of the world, by their own admission, Israel is committing war crimes. They have stated it publicly. This isn't a matter of opinion. Uh, they declared their intention to force, through the threat of military bombardment, more than a million, and it is now well more than a million, Palestinians from their homes in northern Gaza and ethnically cleanse them. A crime against humanity. They stated publicly and have done it in front of the eyes of the world, the intention to deny to 2.2 million people water, electricity, medicine, uh, life-saving uh, equipment in front of the eyes of the world, and they're doing it. And every minute, children are being slaughtered uh, by their artillery, their relentless bombardment of residential complexes, of hospitals, of schools, uh, of civilian infrastructure. They just go on and on and on, and you do nothing. Nothing. Words of concern, but no action to hold them to account. And it is clearly premeditated war crimes and genocide. Genocide. We have Jewish uh, people in the United States and Canada around the world and Israel calling it genocide. Uh, scholars, academics saying this is genocidal. Let me quote you a few things. Israeli general, quote, human animals must be treated as such. There will be no electricity and no water. There will only be destruction. Uh, Yoav Gallant, a minister, says we are fighting human animals. We will, quote, act accordingly. Every, we will remove, quote, every restriction on the IDF. Smotrich, another minister, there is no such thing as the Palestinians. The president of Israel refers to the people of Gaza and says they are all responsible. Before October the 7th, Netanyahu appeared in front of the UN General Assembly with a map of Israel that had removed all references to Palestine. A clear declaration of intent to destroy the Palestinian uh, people uh, and steal all of their land. 6,000 Palestinians killed between 2008 and before October the 7th. Thousands of 
Palestinians hostage in administrative detention without trial. Deputy, when are you going to move beyond words of concern and impose sanctions and expel the Israeli ambassador of this apartheid murderous state? Well, first of all, I'm horrified by every single death. But you see, the world is responsible for failing to call out the reality of the Israeli regime. It is an apartheid regime. It was set up on the basis of the ethnic cleansing of 750,000 Palestinians. It has sustained itself through the ethnic cleansing ongoing of Palestinians, day in, day out, in East Jerusalem, uh, across the West Bank, uh, everywhere. Even where Hamas, there's no Hamas. I mean, I lived there. At the beginning of the first Palestinian Antifada in 1987, there was no Hamas. Young people rose up because they were their entire future had been stolen from them. They were suffering ferocious oppression at the hands of the Israeli regime and military, and they rose up. There was no Hamas. The PLO weren't even in the country. They were in Tunis. And Israel met them with brutality, with murder, with administrative detention, with ethnic cleansing, and they have continued that day in, day out. And yet, your government refuses to keep, even call them an apartheid regime. You refuse to acknowledge the ethnic cleansing, the war crimes that human rights organization after human rights organization has begged and appealed to you and European governments to hold them account, to end their impunity. The, the world has given them the license to conduct the savagery they are doing now, and they are responsible for the crimes that we are witnessing. If we want to end the murder, we have to hold Israel accountable for its crimes. That's it for today, and keep in mind, my goal at the end of all this is to see that both Jewish citizens, Israeli citizens, yes, or one and all, those who are Orthodox, those who are Zionists, those who are just regular people, they all have a chance to live in peace and harmony, to live a long and prosperous life. But I also want the same exact thing for the Christians, Palestinians, living in the West Bank and Gaza. Could we do it? Yes. Could you rebuild the West Bank and, and Gaza so you have industries there and gainful work and prosperity? Yes but not with the leadership we have in the United States, Great Britain, France, and in Israel. So it's a political solution to a humanitarian crisis that just keeps going on and on and on. Thank you all for watching, listening. Have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the answer.